We want to continue our study of 1 Corinthians this morning. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And at last, at last, we are at the good news in 1 Corinthians. There's nothing about tongues. There's nothing about prophecy. There's nothing about whether women should or should not speak in the churches. There are no lawsuits that are going to happen in this passage. There is no incest, no promiscuity, no sexual immorality of any shape or kind. It's just good news. And uh, I've been longing for this passage (laughs) in ways that you cannot imagine. This passage is about the gospel. And um, it's a word that we use often, but we don't often think about what it means. Gospel just means good news. And this passage is delightful news, the best news ever. It's news of a kind, uh, as um, in a story that was told by John Ortberg. His story is kind of a scale model of what we want to talk about today. He says, in May of 2009, my family was in Azusa, California, because one of our kids was graduating from Azusa Pacific University. My wife, Nancy, was going to speak at the commencement ceremonies, so she and I were invited to a special gathering of about 50 people, people from the graduating class of 50 years ago and a few faculty members. He says, um, during the gathering, John Wallace, the president of Azusa Pacific, brought out three students who were graduating that year and told us that for the next two years, they were going to serve the poorest of the poor in India. These three students thought they were just there to be commissioned and sent out with a blessing, which they were. But then something happened that they did not know was coming. The president turned to them and said, I have a piece of news for you. There's somebody you do not know, an anonymous donor, who is so moved by what you're doing that he has given a gift to this university in your name on your behalf. Then the president turned to the first student and said, you are forgiven your debt of $105,000. The kid immediately begins to weep. He turns to the next student. You are forgiven your debt of $70,000. And he turns to the third student. You are forgiven your debt of $130,000. All three students had no idea this was coming. They had no idea, he says. They were just ambushed by grace. That somebody they don't even know would pay a debt of that size that they had incurred. He says, the whole room, he says, I mean, everybody in the room is just in tears. And and he says, I wanted so badly to say, you know, I have a daughter graduating this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) To have a debt forgiven, that's good news. To have it done for us, by one who loves us when we deserve it not. That's the best news ever. That's the gospel. To be undeservedly loved and forgiven. In some ways, that's what we all long for. That's what we all stand in need of. Ernest Hemingway wrote a story about a father and his teenage son. 
And in the story, the relationship had become somewhat strained, and the teenager ran away from home, and his father began a journey in search of that rebellious son. Finally, in Madrid, Spain, in a last desperate attempt to find the boy, the father put an ad in the local newspaper, and the ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. The next day, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up. They were all seeking forgiveness. They were all seeking the love of their father. John Stott, theologian John Stott, who just passed away this year, wrote that um, just before she died in 1988, there was a a moment of surprising candor on television by uh, Marganita Lasky, one of their best-known secular humanists and novelists. She said, what I envy most about your Christians, you Christians, is your forgiveness I have nobody to forgive me. We have one who forgives us, even us. His name is Jesus. That's the good news. That's the best news ever. That is the gospel. And this is what Paul has on his mind and heart in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He's going to remind the church, he's going to remind us of the beauty and the power and the message of the gospel. So if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, I'd like to pray for us and then we'll we'll dig in. Father, come and have mercy on a forgetful people that we could forget the best news ever and live our lives like it didn't exist. May your reminder be powerful today as we sit under your word and let it shape us, shape our hearts and our minds. We ask for this mercy in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. Right out of the blocks, in this chapter, Paul begins with a kind of caution, if I could paraphrase him. He is saying to the Corinthians, not all news is good news. Not every gospel is the gospel. Um, You pick that up in the first couple of verses. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul these opening lines, and especially what's to follow, he is saying to them and to us that the gospel has a particular content. He's going to say in verse 3 that he received this content, uh, likely referring to the fact that he received it from God in that great Damascus Road experience, and then from Ananias and others who taught him and mentored him in the faith of Jesus Christ. In turn, Paul passed that content on to the church in Corinth. Remember, he was their founding pastor. He started the church there. He told them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lived with them for a year and a half or so. Um, And they received this gospel from him and they believed it. Down in verse 11, it says, um, we preach 
and you believed. The Corinthians believed this gospel that Paul brought to them, and it is the gospel that all the apostles preach. The gospel then, Paul says back in the first couple of verses, it has a powerful effect. It is saving them. It is changing them. But there's a word of warning for them and for us. Paul says, if you deny this gospel and believe another, then you will have believed in vain. In their case, Paul's concerned that they were denying the possibility of a bodily resurrection. Couldn't happen, they said. And by virtue of denying that, they were also denying the resurrection of Christ. In the passage we'll look at next week, Paul speaks about that. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, here's the expression, is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If Christ is not raised, is it really good news anymore, Paul's saying? Is it still the gospel? See, the content of the good news matters. It's what makes it good news. It's not enough to be sincerely wrong any more than it's enough to be insincerely right. Paul is calling them and us to a sincere belief in the true gospel. It's interesting. Um, Renowned atheist Christopher Hitchens uh, recently came out with a new book. Maybe you've heard of it. God is not great. Why religion poisons everything. Went on tour promoting the book. Part of the tour was debates with Christians, uh, renowned Christians around the country. Um, In the process of that, he did an interview in Portland, Oregon, by a Unitarian minister named Marilyn Sewell. And this is an excerpt that came at the start of that interview, she says to him, the religion you cite in your book is generally the fundamentalist faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the Scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religions? And this is what Hitchens says to her. He says, "Um, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. (laughs) Sewell, who wanted no part of that discussion, her next words are in the transcript, uh, let me go someplace else. So just change change of topic. But... The article goes on to say, this little snippet demonstrates an important point about religious God talk. You can call yourself anything you like, but if you don't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who died on the cross for our sins and then rose from the dead, you are not in any meaningful sense a Christian. See, if you don't hold to the truth of the gospel as delivered from God 
to Paul and then preached by him to the Corinthians, which we hold in our hands on our reading together this day. If you don't believe that gospel, then you have believed in vain, Paul says. doesn't matter how sincere you are. You have believed a hopeless, ineffective, counterfeit gospel. And Paul has absolutely no tolerance for alternative gospels. If you remember last year when we studied the book of Galatians, Paul says this. He says in chapter 1, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even, Paul says, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul's serious about this. Don't mess with the gospel. Not all news is good news. Not the good news. Not every gospel is the gospel. Believe a false gospel. In this case, the Corinthians case, one that denies the resurrection, and you will have believed in vain, Paul says. So having underscored the importance of what he's about to say, Paul, what he does for us next is remind us of the content of the true gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ who is, that is saving us. This is the best news on earth. And it goes like this, very simply. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is the gospel. This is the good news. Now, when somebody asks you what the gospel is, that's not a trick question. You don't have to go over to the seminary and get a PhD in theology to figure out what the gospel is. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew to figure out what the gospel is. It's not a trick question. It's not even a hard question. But it is perhaps the most important question. And if I can just lift out of these few verses, this is, this is the gospel at its essence. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. How about, we, how about we say it together? This is the gospel. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day. That's the gospel. That's good news. You should say that with a smile. That's good news. Um, that, that is the gospel. And the reason... The reason we say it's such good news is because the backdrop for it is some very, very bad news. It's bad news about you and me. And in the language of the Bible, we are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul writes in the book of Romans, you and me, everybody in this room, we have sinned. And our sin is far worse than we think it is. It is, in a word, unbearable. If we should choose to bear our own sin, 
the Bible says time after time after time, if we choose to bear our own sin, it will destroy us. Listen to Jesus' own words about this. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, good news. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Ezekiel simply said, the soul who sins shall die. Paul would say in Galatians, the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. So we can bear our own sin. If we do, it will crush us. And we will experience what the Bible describes as intolerable, eternal suffering and destruction. Or, or we can believe in the one who has borne our sin for us. In love, he has borne that penalty for us. Peter says it beautifully in 1 Peter 2. He's writing about Jesus on the cross. And he says, then they hurled their insults at him and he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is good news. Like the Corinthians, we have believed this gospel and have received it and we stand in it and our sin then has been borne by Christ in our place. We don't have to bear our own sins. Christ died for our sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news, the very best of news. Paul wants to make sure that we understand that it is sure, that this is sure news as well as good news. And he underscores the reliability of this news when he says that it happened in accordance with the Scriptures. That is to say, it happened as predicted, as expected, as planned by God himself. It's sure news according to the Scriptures, Paul said. When he says according to the Scriptures, he means it's part of the bigger story that God is telling, that he is enacting in Scriptures. It goes like this. In the beginning, God created everything to be perfect. There was no sickness, disease, sadness. Everything lived in harmony. But man rebelled against the loving God and believed Satan's lie. So sin entered into the human heart, and everything is now distorted and broken. Everyone is guilty before God. But Jesus, who is God, came to rescue people by his death and resurrection. By faith alone in him, everyone who can have... everyone can have their sins forgiven and enjoy eternal life with him. And everything will be restored to the way that it was supposed to be. And those who trust in Jesus will get to enjoy eternity in the new heaven and the new earth. If you're listening closely, that should sound very familiar to you. You heard about the creation, the fall, the rescue, and the restoration. It's the story that our whole church has been being trained in all summer long. Some of you are leaving, or work, well, I guess in the first hour you were in a class 
that explain the fall to you. The second part of that great story. Paul emphasizes the surety of this story when he says it happened in accordance with the Scriptures. Also when he says that Christ was buried. Um, that Christ was buried. Back in verse 4, we see it. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul says he was buried. He didn't pass out. He didn't swoon. There was no last-minute switcheroo. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and they buried him in that tomb right outside of Jerusalem, and they posted a guard there. It happened just as God said it would. And in that same way, from that same tomb, he was raised on the third day. And this, too, is made sure by testimony. The testimony of the Scriptures... Paul says again, after he was raised from the dead, he was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and according to a bunch of eyewitnesses. In verse 5, he says, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. So Jesus appeared to many different groups, many different places, at many different times. Paul cites a handful of them here, including 500 at once. And he says, most of them are still alive when I'm writing this. You could go ask them. They're still around, he says. And he says, he adds one more name to that list of witnesses. He says, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. He adds his own name to that list of witnesses, a reference to what happened to him on that road to Damascus back in Acts chapter 9. When he went by the name of Saul, he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues to Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, those who were followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound, arrested to Jerusalem. And as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and he is testifying to that here. And he uses an interesting expression. As to one untimely born. Um, Gordon Fee says this, this kind of odd expression refers to any kind of premature birth, even abortion. And he says it's used figuratively then to refer to something horrible or freakish. It's been suggested, he says, that the Corinthians themselves have used this term to describe Paul. He was, in their mind, the freakish apostle. Remember throughout the book, they were always questioning Paul's authority as an apostle over them, always bucking up against it. They didn't think he really was what he was supposed to be. His, or, his oratory was not good enough. His words were not strong enough. Um, he was, in their minds, the freakish apostle. But now it's a derogatory term that Paul willingly embraces. He says, yeah, that's me. I am that guy. He was the one who planted a church in Corinth, preached the gospel to them, their father in the faith, and now he says, yeah, you're right. I'm the freakish apostle. 
Why would he tolerate that from them, let alone agree with it? Why would he so happily call himself in that next verse, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to even be called an apostle? Paul uses this kind of language of himself throughout the New Testament. Um, In Acts, he says um, what he did. He says, "I, I convinced I was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In Ephesians, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. In 1 Timothy, he says, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance is the saying that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost, the chief of sinners, some of our Bibles say. Paul, Paul is agreeing to this assessment of himself for one reason. It's because of the way he thinks about his own sin. Back in verse 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. His own sin is what causes him to so humble himself, to even be willing to be called the freakish apostle, because he knows he doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve what Christ is doing in his life. But let's, let's be objective here. Is Paul really the worst of sinners? I mean, Paul, remember in Acts, he held the cloaks of the people who were stoning Stephen, but he just held the cloaks. What about the guys who were stoning Stephen, killing him? Weren't they worse off? Weren't they worse sinners? What about Herod? He killed all those babies when Jesus was born, trying to kill Jesus himself. Wouldn't that be worse than what Paul did? History is full of Hitlers and Stalins. Um, How could Paul be the chief of sinners? It's not some kind of sinometer reading where you measure your sin and then you've got Hitler and you're a little worse than Hitler. It's not like that. It's how Paul sees his own sin. His sin was so great as to be unbearable to him, so great as to overshadow the sin of others in his mind. His sin was the sin he was preoccupied with, not the sins of others by comparison. But his sin was pretty great, if you think about it. He was killing Christians, or at least giving assent to it. That's pretty wicked, to be killing Christians. Um, Especially if you compare it to us. We struggle with pride. We struggle with anger, we struggle with worry, some lust here and there. Um, I've counseled all those things. I've never counseled anybody who's killing Christians. And no one has ever come at North Wake and said, this is my great struggle, my secret sin, I'm killing Christians. So we're not as bad as Paul. That's where we're different from Paul. See, when we compare, we evaluate our sin by comparing it to others, our sin can become small because we're really selective about who we compare to. We always compare to somebody worse than us, that axe murderer over there, that proponent of genocide over in Africa. We're better than them. Nobody's going around saying, I'm going to compare myself to Mother Teresa. 
How about Billy Graham and me, one-on-one? How are we doing? That's not who we compare ourselves to. And so when we compare ourselves in these favorable comparisons, our sins can become small. But when we're honest and the backdrop is not some other person but God himself and what he's said about our sin, our little sins are not as little as they used to be. Our harmless sins are not as harmless anymore. For instance, Proverbs says, God hates our pride. Everyone who's arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Jesus likens our anger to murder. He says, you've heard that it was says that those of old, of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Our lust, Jesus says, is kin to adultery. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Our greed, Paul says, it's like idolatry. It's the root of all evil. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils, Paul says. Fear, fear is antitrust. It's against trust. It's the opposite of trust. Proverbs stacks them up against each other. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Our sins are not as little and as innocuous as we like to make them out to be. Just like Paul, the gospel for us is good news because it stands up in front of such bad news that we, all of us, are sinners. And when we grasp that, we grasp that our sins have been forgiven us, like Paul, we're humbled and we say all is of grace. All is of grace. He, says, he closes our, se- our section with this. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, an apostle. And this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. When I see my sin first and foremost, when I see it for all it is, I know that my standing with God is all of grace, undeserved grace. And grace is responsible for all the good that I do. Denise Banderman writes that in the spring of 2002, she says, I left work early so I could have some uninterrupted study time before my final exam in the youth ministry class at Hannibal LaGrange College in Missouri. When I got to class, everybody was doing their last minute studying. The teacher came in, said he would review with us before the test, and most of the review came right from the study guide, but there were some things he was reviewing that I had never heard, and when questioned about it, he said they were in the book and we were responsible for everything in the book. Finally, it was time to take the test. He said, leave them face down on the desk until everyone has one, and I'll tell you to start. Dr. Tom Hufty, the professor, instructed them. When we turned them over, she says, to my astonishment, every answer on the test was filled in. My name was even written on the exam in red ink. The bottom of the last page said, this is the end of the exam. 
All the answers on your test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the test is because the creator of the test took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. And Dr. Hufty, she says, then went around the room and asked each student individually, what is your grade? Do you deserve the grade you are receiving? How much did all your studying for this exam help you achieve your final grade? And then he said this to the class. He said, some things you learn from lectures, some things you learn from research, but some things you can only learn from experience. You've just experienced grace. 100 years from now, he said, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, your name will be written down in a book and it will have had nothing to do with you writing it there. That will be the ultimate grace experience. Some of you have experienced that grace. You know what it means to have your name written in that book, not because you deserve it, but because someone died in your place. Someone bore your sin. These stories of grace can affect us just just as we hear the gospel in other people's life, as Paul recounted the gospel, he was humbled by it. As we hear the gospel, we are humbled by it. And so this morning, we want to conclude our time a little bit differently. We want to give you a chance to tell your story of how it is that you came to embrace the gospel, how grace came to you. We want to give you an opportunity to give thanks And to do it in such a way that you encourage everyone in this room as they hear your story of how you came to believe in and know the one who loves you and died for your sins, how you came to believe the gospel. So the worship team's going to come and lead us in a song. And then after that song, we'll have a time of testimony. Will you be able to come up? The mic will be set up up here. You can come and approach the mic. Tell us your name. Tell us your story briefly. There's about four to five hundred stories in this room. We'd like to hear several of them. So think in terms of an audible tweet, okay? You know, 140 some odd characters, whatever you can get in really, really short, but clear enough that we know how God brought grace, this gospel of grace to you so that we can remember our own stories. So we're going to have a chance to hear stories and tell stories. You also have a chance to write a story today. If you've never believed then this is your day. The gospel is being retold today for you so that you could hear the simple truth that Christ died for your sins, was buried and raised on the third day. And you could believe in that, trust in that, and follow him all the days of your life. You can write your story today. You can do it right now, and I'd like to pray for you along that line. Let's pray together, and then we'll worship Christ in song and testimony. Okay. Father, we give thanks that grace is greater than all our sin. All of them stacked up, the horrible, hidden, secret things that we all know. They're in our minds. They haunt us. We know that grace is greater, that the death of Christ is sufficient for all of our sins. 
and we cling to that. We are humbled by it as we should be. We worship and exalt you, the one who has forgiven us, the one who loves us. God, this morning there are some who never heard it this way before or for reasons of fear or addiction or whatever they have refused to believe it this morning, God, give them favor. Hear their cry to you now as they believe that Jesus died for their sins, was buried and raised on the third day. Grant them relationship with you forever, eternal life. We ask all this in Christ's name, who we now worship. Amen. Would you stand?